Eager to hear his history, I begged him to go on and tell it. He gladly complied, though at the time I but ill comprehended not a few of his words, yet subsequent disclosures, when I had become more familiar with his phraseology, now enable me to present the whole story, such as it may prove in the mere skeleton I give. Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Welcome back to Critical Mass Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Social Impact at UVU, located on the first floor of the Student Center, right across from the ballroom. This is your official invitation to come say hello and see for yourself what we're all about. I'm Danny, a student leader at the Center, and I'll be your host this year. Now, in physics, the term critical mass refers to the minimum amount of material needed to spark a chemical reaction. In social impact language, we use the term critical mass to talk about the minimum number of people we need in order to create social change, or even the initial spark that starts a social movement. But assuming that number is more than one, and it usually is, how do we build a community capable of starting and sustaining positive social change? Critical Mass Season 2, Critical Connections, seeks to answer that question. We identify a community, find out who some key players are, and then try to do two things, trace how those connections were made, and in the process, build new ones. But much as I'd love to, it's impossible for me to actually bring all you listeners along with me throughout this process. You can't be here as I email back and forth with a potential interviewee or sit with me in meetings when I discuss narrative building and themes. And honestly, I don't think that would be very good or useful for any of us. If you are interested in making those kinds of connections, I highly recommend starting your own project or, hell, apply to the Community Engaged Learning and Research Fellow position at the Center for Social Impact. Back to my main point, though. In some ways, the very purpose of this podcast is defeated by the very constraints that make it possible. And there's nothing I can do about most of that. But there is one thing I can do, which is give you access to the full interviews. So welcome to Critical Mass bonus episodes. Every interview I conduct will be released in full throughout each month. And without further ado, I'll let the interviewee introduce themselves. Um, Please introduce yourself, your name, pronouns, and any general personal biographical information you feel comfortable sharing. Hello, I'm Dr. Rentra Ma. My pronouns are he, him, and I am an assistant professor in the English department here at UVU. I teach medieval literature, which generally means old and middle English literature, as well as you know, related literature from France and other places. And you know, I'm originally from Taiwan. Uh, I was born in London, but I grew up in Taiwan and the U.S., and I lived in New York before moving to Utah. So I've, been, so I've lived in many parts of the U.S. and the world. So I'm curious, uh, what's one thing in your life that you have always wanted to do but haven't been able to do yet? I I would say cross-country skiing. Uh, And I've started snowshoeing recently as part of just living in Utah uh, and embracing the outdoors. And I've sought advice from colleagues, from friends about trying cross-country skiing and just hasn't quite happened year to year. But I'm hoping that this winter will be the year, and I, you know, I've kind of just really enjoyed being the solitude of being kind of in the middle of a snowy field or exploring places that you wouldn't otherwise get to unless you're on skis. There is a sense of just stillness and quiet that I appreciate that I think helps me take a step back from whatever I'm involved in one way or another, and again, seeking kind of quietude and stillness. Well, that sounds beautiful and also super terrifying. (laughs) Uh, So I'm curious as well, um, what type of art or form of expression do you think is underappreciated at UVU? That's a hard question. I would say, you know, I'm seeing more and more of this now, uh, kind of 
public sculptures outdoors. I know there are some that are in front of buildings or you know, in, in the courtyards in between buildings, but now, I know we have that giant UVU kind of sign in, uh, in the courtyard just outside the, um, the Sorensen Center and towards the LA building and whatnot. So, but I would like to see kind of you know, public sculptures uh, as a way of, you know, I think public art is a way that a community can define and articulate its interests uh, and it's you know, what it wants to express, what it wants to show to themselves or to, um, to visitors, to the world around them. So more forms of kind of public art installations uh, as a way of signaling who we are as a campus community. I love that. I, it actually reminds me a lot of the study abroad in London. Full disclosure, I went on a study abroad this summer to London for the literature program, and Professor Ma was one of the faculty advisors. Uh, and while we were there, I noticed a lot of public art. So you would just be walking down a road, and you might see all sorts of public installations of art, and some, some that looked like it was officially put there by you know the city, and some that looked like maybe someone just left it there. <laughs> There's something beautiful in that chaos, though, that I, I quite liked. Yeah, very much so. And uh, depending on who, you know, who's put the art where, you know, whether it's kind of a community commission or you know, someone just going rogue and putting art in places, uh, I'm reminded of that. I think that was that metal bar in southern Utah that appeared out of nowhere oh, yeah, a few years yeah. ago. Um, but in some way, shape, or form, it, it kind of tells us who we are at, as a community and what we appreciate or what we want to see in our outdoor public spaces. So, and I think it's it's fascinating to think about public art along those lines. And yes, like London being this kind of rich cityscape, um, you, you see you know, interesting you know combinations and juxtapositions as well. If you could put any art piece here at UVU in, in that vein, in that idea of you're trying to express this, this value, what, what would it be and what value would it be expressing? Well, I, I, I would almost want to say, no, something, that, something that's a representation of the, uh, the students here. And I think some, what I've come to admire over the years that I've taught here, and I've taught here, on, this is my seventh year teaching here at UVU, is the, the length that students go to make education a part of their lives alongside you know, work or alongside family commitments. And so something that, I don't know, a some sort of maybe a, you know, what a student's you know, locker or what their backpacks or what their desk at home might look like. And all these, maybe maybe their desk at home, and something that, you know, represents their you know, ability and their perseverance to juggle all of these different pursuits and really kind of make space for, for education, for their studies. I would say something along those lines. That might sound a little bit invasive, given that it's so <laughs> opening up this pri- no, private space. But um, I think it's something to, to, to speak to kind of the, again, the effort, the lengths that students go to to make education a part of their lives here. I love that. I'm a non-traditional student myself. So especially that idea of like juggling <laughs> all these different things and, and persevering to get that degree it can seem less and less worth it for people as they see the the loans pile on and the other obligations begin to expand. At least for me, I think that it's it's all it's all worth it for sure. And I would love to see uh, some art piece that represented that sort of struggle, but also the the passion that makes that all happen. I asked you to bring your favorite poem or other writing. Could you tell me what you brought, why, and then read it? So true to form, as a medieval literature professor, I brought a work of medieval literature. Uh, so it's a it's not the entire poem. The entire poem is you no know, more than two thousand lines long. So we'll be here forever if I try to read the entire poem. So 
I'm going to read an excerpt from the Middle English poem Sir Gawain the Green Knight. Some of you may be familiar with Sir Gawain the Green Knight from the movie The Green Knight, which came out a couple years ago with Dev Patel as the star.、Um, and it's a kind of an enigma of a poem where a knight goes on a quest that is surprising at every turn, and where you no know, he encounters. Encounters the forces of nature and also the forces of love and the forces of, you know, magic and fantasy as well. It's really like I'm saying, it's it's an enigma.、Uh, but there are some beautiful, beautiful passages reflect on the passage of time and the passage of seasons. Like given that we're in late September, early October right now, and you know, the we've started to see the leaves turn color.、Um, So there's about twenty-ish lines or so that describe the passage of seasons and the forward momentum of time that I've chosen. I'm going to read、uh, a translation by the British poet Simon Armitage and just pick out a few places of Middle English to point to afterwards,、um, where there's some interesting kind of sound play and word play. So this is from Sir Gawain the Green Knight. So the festival finishes and a new year follows in eternal sequence, season by season. After lavish Christmas come the lean days of Lent, when the flesh is tested with fish and simple food. Then the world's weather wages war on winter. Cold shrinks earthward and the clouds climb. Sun-warmed, shimmery rain comes showering onto meadows and fields, where flowers unfurl. Woods and grounds wear a wardrobe of green. Birds burble with life and build busily as summer spreads. Settling on slopes as it should. Now every hedgerow brims with blossom and with bud, and lively songbirds sing from lovely leafy woods. So summer comes in season with its subtle airs, when the west wind sighs among shoots and seeds, and those plants which flower and flourish are a pleasure as their leaves let drip their drink of dew, and they sparkle and glitter when glanced by sunlight. The autumn arrives to harden the harvest. And with it comes a warning to ripen before winter. The drying airs arrive, driving up dust from the face of the earth to the heights of heaven. And wild sky wrestles the sun with its winds, and the leaves of the lime lay littered on the ground. The grass that was green turns withered and gray. Then all which had arisen overripens and rots. And yesterday on yesterday the year dies away, and winter returns. As is the way of the world through time,、uh, so I chose this passage just because of the you know, lively, vibrant, beautiful description of the seasons、uh, and the kind of characteristics of each season, from spring through summer to fall to winter, and the way that you know, the the imagery and the sounds of the poem、um, just build one on top of the other to create this you know, vibrant, beautiful landscape. So there was a line that I read in there about the dew. The plants which flower and flourish are pleasure, as their leaves let drip their drink of dew. In the Middle English, when the dokhan the dew droppes o the leaves to bleed a blissful blush of brita sun. So that repetition of difference, the D and the B sounds there,、uh, just kind of. Livening, you can feel the leaves, the dewdrops,、uh, and you can feel the in the modern just sparkle and the glitter just by the rhythm of the poetry. The you know, bid a blissful blush of bright sun,、uh, and also towards the end of what I read、uh, in English, in modern English, yesterday on yesterday, I I love this line where in the Middle English it says, "And thus yearnest the year in yesterday this morning." So time. 
has a yearning. Time looks forward. Time, uh, you know, kind of inevitably, inexorably, always moves forward. Uh, looks from one season to another. That yesterdays have a yearning and kind of looks forward to the future. I know I said a lot just now, but I can't help appreciating how how beautiful this passage is. That is absolutely beautiful, and and just hearing it in the Middle English as well really drives home the care that the poet put in when writing this that sort of uh, you were mentioning the repetition of I think it was the C's and the D's it sounds beautiful when spoken Uh, even when you were reading the uh, modern English translation there were points where I was like I could imagine this in a song Um, and so hearing it in that that middle English I think especially sort of drives home that sort of I mean, there's no other way to put it than poetic. I think. Yeah, it's it's like a it's like a sketch, but done through sound. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we normally sketch with you no know, a pencil or you no know, other kind of implement. But this is uh, this is the poet sketching the passage of seasons through sound. And it, um, you know, I've read and taught this poem many many times. I never kind of cease to kind of wonder at this passage. Well, thank you so much for sharing. That was absolutely beautiful, and it was was lovely to have that sketch sort of in my mind. Thank you so much for, for sharing that art. I'm going to have another question at the end about art in general. But for now, we're going to get into the, the serious business section. <laughs> uh, but before we jump into things, I just wanted to say thank you so much for talking with me. Um, I know this, this can be sort of a sensitive and tricky subject when we're talking about matters of spirituality, religion, identity, all that kind of stuff. So um, I also want to take a moment to emphasize for the audience that while I do value your opinion as an academic and a living expert, I want to remind listeners that Professor Ma and all other interviewees are individuals with their own perspectives and opinions, which may vary significantly (laughs) from someone else's perspective, even someone with similar educational training and lived experiences. No race, religion, community, or identity is a monolith, and no one person should be expected to represent perfectly an entire community. So with that being said, <laughs> let's jump right in. So part of the reason I asked you to come on today is not just because I wanted to hear you read Middle English, cool as that is, <laughs> uh, but also because I happened to be talking to some people who are part of a local Buddhist community. And I knew from our chats prior to all this that you identify yourself as a Buddhist. So I wanted to ask, uh, how did you come to learn and practice Buddhism? Yeah, so and I think thank you for that really thoughtful reminder about kind of not treating, you know, uh, communities as monoliths. I think I'll I'll do my best to kind of to indicate and when something is more my personal experience and when something is when an idea is something that's maybe more widely accepted among Buddhists as far as I can tell. But the in terms of you know, coming to practice or learn about Buddhism, uh, for me it's it was really ingrained in the culture growing up in Taiwan. So my family is Buddhist and Taoist. Um, those kind of uh, traditions tend to overlap and be blended in many different ways. Uh, so it was really part of my cultural background. I, in other words, I didn't kind of learn a you know, the equivalent of a catechism or uh, to use a kind of Catholic term um, or um, kind of a series of creed or dogma. For me, Buddhism was just part of the culture that I grew up in and it was ingrained in family practices, celebrations, major holidays or major occasions. And so for me, practicing Buddhism, a large part of it is following tradition. And the traditions are ingrained in how my family practices the religion, how they approach um, Buddhism. So I think that's a, it's a little bit different from, uh, I think, how 
uh, how you know, how someone maybe kind of begins to practice religion now. And so there was really no beginning for me. It was just part um, part of part of what I know um, all along. Thank you. I'm wondering how growing up uh, with this sort of traditional cultural practice um, has affected the lens in which you see the world. I think the biggest part is that it draws my attention to ideas of compassion. I think that's a very big part of the Buddhism that I'm familiar with and that I grew up practicing with my family. And thinking about the world, I think a lot of people might think of this as grace, but just making room and acknowledging suffering, acknowledging difficulties, and kind of holding space for someone um, when it occurs. And the Buddhism that I knew growing up emphasized compassion a great deal. I think compassion in the sense of not only kind of sympathy and empathy, but also understanding that this is how the world works and that inevitably there will be you know, low points, there will be ups and downs, there will be fortunes and misfortunes. So I think being able to see that bigger picture of kind of that you know, things won't go our way in the world and being there for someone when it doesn't, when, when things don't go their way. Uh, so I think that's, that's a large part of how, at least how my experience of, um, of Buddhism has been. So I also wanted to ask, you mentioned that your exposure to this, your, your learning and how you sort of became familiar with Buddhism was rooted in this sort of traditional cultural practice that you and your family had. And I realized that someone might call themselves a Buddhist and it might be a more of a cultural practice and someone might call them a Buddhist and it might be a far more religious practice. And those can vary so differently, even within the same tradition. So I just wanted to ask, do you consider yourself a practicing Buddhist or a cultural Buddhist, if that is a helpful dichotomy to draw? Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting dichotomy. And I, I would definitely lean towards the, the cultural Buddhist um, in the same way that I've heard people who are Catholic describe themselves as you know, Christmas and Easter Catholics, or Jewish people describing themselves as you know, high holiday, who go to temple for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So my, my family was not, I wouldn't say that my family was devout in the sense that you know, we didn't do you know, daily offices or daily recitals or, or prayers, but it's just always there in the background, especially for you know, say holidays like Buddha's birthday, uh, which uh, is celebrated in a number of ways, or uh, you know, turns of the year like the Lunar New Year or other holidays where, um, where there would be occasion for, generally occasion for sending friends, family members, well wishes. And I think that Buddhism, as I know, was an important vehicle for that, for loved ones and people who are close to each other to send their blessings and exchange blessings. So that's why I was I would lean more towards the culture side. And I know I have friends who you know regularly go to retreats and temples or, or recite sutras in the mornings. And so those are what in my mind will be more of the kind of practicing Buddhists. Perhaps I wouldn't say I'm practicing in terms of not having kind of daily rituals, but I'm definitely someone who I definitely observe um, Buddhist traditions and go along with them and pay attention to them uh, as part of you know, as part of life. Based on our prior conversation about this, you also mentioned that you have other spiritual or religious practices. Uh, would you like to describe some of those? Yeah, so uh, in the last few years, I've started attending a Unitarian Universalist congregation uh, in Salt Lake City, which is where I live. For me, uh, it's a, I know this, you know, your mileage may vary. You know, everyone has different approaches towards spirituality. And for me, Unitarian Universalism is accepting of a 
wide range of creeds, a wide range of beliefs, and is interested in spiritual uh, exploration of spirituality generally uh, in terms of you know, asking questions about spirituality rather than subscribing to a specific set of dogma or creed. And so for me, this was a way to uh, carry the Buddhist upbringing and traditions I had that have been part of my you know, childhood and adulthood that I grew up with, carrying that forward um, and seeing continuities in the kind of more broadly speaking, you know, Western Christian culture that, you know, that we live in. And that was kind of very much the background to my education. Um, most of my education was conducted in the U.S. and the U.K. I did attend primary school and parts of middle school in Taiwan, but being the child of a diplomat, I moved around um, a lot. And so I had this kind of parallel of, you know, of being educated in Taiwan, being educated in the U.S. throughout my life, and the kind of, uh, you might say, the kind of spiritual and religious underpinnings of uh, the cultures I grew up in found a meeting place in Unitarian Universalism. And I did not need to give up Buddhism or reject that. Instead, I can you know, carry that forward with me and have it be a part of the perspective from which I ask questions about spirituality and see how you know, the spiritual, tradition, spiritual traditions I grew up with intersects with you know, the culture that I live and work in and also you know, just not having to give up the kind of spiritual vehicle that has been how my family wished me well and how I wish my family well over the years. Uh, so kind of finding those meeting points, sometimes in surprising ways, and think about you know, how, how they're continuous, how they're related to each other, and how they may contrast with each other as well. I want to dig in a little bit more. You mentioned that this was kind of something, a place where you wouldn't have to give up these things that you've learned about Buddhism and the way that uh, your family has practiced. How would you best describe the sect of Buddhism that you and your family are closest in proximity to, mm-hmm. especially for those who might be unaware of the many different paths, sects, or uh, strains of Buddhism? So generally, um, there are a number of major strands of Buddhism. Um, you, some people may have heard of terms like Mahayana or Theravada, and there's one more that I can't pronounce properly, so I'm not going to try and do this on the air. But you know, Mahayana, Theravada are you know, really widely known. And um, it's hard for me to answer this question, I admit, because so much of this was lived and that was part of family tradition that it's hard to put a label on it. And I admit that I had to like look up articles kind of in preparation for this. I looked up some articles about different strands of Buddhism just to make sure that you know, I was getting my terms right. So this is the strand of Buddhism that is particularly popular and predominant in Taiwan. It's Mahayana Buddhism, which as far as I know, kind of is more focused on what you can do with Buddhist beliefs in the present moment. It's very much grounded in uh, the present life and taking action towards a kind of state of enlightenment or it's kind of realizing a state of enlightenment or getting as close as possible. And some might call uh, the particular strand that's popular in Taiwan, that's really widespread, uh, Pure Land Buddhism. Uh, I, I don't want to get into the specifics because I'm not sure how those specifics are described, especially in uh, in kind of religious scholarship, uh, and since that's kind of contrast to how I've experienced it. So I think this is part of me kind of reconciling the kind of scholarly understanding of Buddhism and my own kind of lived understanding and family traditions. But as far as I know, generally it's Mahayana Buddhism um, and specifically Pure Land Buddhism, which emphasizes on reciting some 
something like Namo Amitabha in Mandarin, Namo Amitofo, uh, which that's kind of key to creating space for moving towards you know, higher forms of enlightenment. I am finding myself smiling a little bit as you talk about doing research. Uh, I love that. This is this podcast is all about that research and that community learning. I have found myself in that position more frequently than I think I want to admit, <laughs> uh, where I'll find myself thinking, you know, this is this is my lived experience. I do know what I know and what I, what I've seen and what I've lived and what my family has experienced, but at the same time, you're all you are right that there's a sort of different way to speak about things from either that more lived experience versus the scholarly conversation, uh, and it can be tricky sometimes because what do you do when they don't line up perfectly or they don't really ref- reflect the reality? If either one is insufficient, it can lead to some friction. So. Yeah, I think I think that's an excellent point, and that's why I've been a little bit hesitant because you know, the the way that I, what I've seen in kind of more scholarly descriptions of Buddhism in English, not in you know, not in not in Mandarin Chinese, um, and uh, there are some places where I felt you know, inevitably they need to kind of pin terms down, and those terms are described in ways that I that are that do have like you say tensions with how I've how I've been taught or how how my family has approached those terms or concepts so it does get tricky kind of navigating and negotiating between those perspectives well I appreciate the effort for sure speaking of you said that while you were doing this you had to kind of go through this like filter and that's one of the things that I'd like to explore with you for a moment if you don't mind Especially in media, there's an interesting filter, (laughs) I think, that Buddhism goes through in Western mainstream depictions in media. Often, Buddhism is used as a kind of vehicle for spiritual awakening, particularly for, like, white American men who portray the teachings of Buddhism as this kind of homogenous, nonspecific spirituality, uh, like a random concoction of ideas severed from the various sects of Buddhism with like random injections of Taoism, Confucianism, and other religions, spiritual practices and philosophies originating from all sorts of places throughout Asia. Rather than like identifying and engaging with the different nuances found in a specific sector philosophy, do you think that this type of portrayal has affected Western culture's understanding of Buddhism? And has it affected your own practice? Uh, this is it. Um, this is a really thoughtful and a really rich question. I'm going to take a bit of time to kind of unpack that, and I'll, I think I'll start by addressing the question about you know, how this type of portrayal uh, has affected generally how Western culture understands Buddhism. And from again, this is from what I've seen uh, in terms of my kind of you know paying attention to popular culture uh, growing up into the present. That what you just described, Danny, often creates a kind of mystique about Buddhism a kind of mysteriousness that this is something that is from a unknown you know, region of the world, the unknown quote-unquote East. Um, and I think as someone who studies literature, it's kind of these kind of generalizations and stereotypes can get really problematic in that they just uh, collapse any sort of meaningful difference that exists um, within these um, religions, or different strands, sects, beliefs. Their, their kind of richness gets overlooked. In a kind of even more troubling way, this kind of mystique, mysteriousness leads to a kind of exoticization of Buddhism as this attractive foreign set of beliefs that in some ways becomes more superficial than substantive in terms of a belief system. In my mind, at least, it can be really reductive. 
and it doesn't honor the kinds of religious practices that I grew up with, or that I think many other Buddhists have taken to and adhere to. And so it becomes kind of stereotyped and uh, cast as mysterious, full of mystique, unknown, exotic, rather than a meaningful set of lived beliefs and that's ongoing and dynamic. You know, just as many other religions update their doctrine, you know, Buddhism does the same thing. There are different discussions about how to you know, approach um, different social social issues that emerge. Uh, so it kind of does a disservice to Buddhism, I think, as a living religion, this type of stereotyping. And a couple of instances come to mind. And one is uh, recently, more recently, kind of the film Doctor Strange, where there was an uproar over uh, the casting of particular characters in that movie and also the positioning of those characters. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Tilda Swinton's casting and her character. And I think the, the actors and the um, production team, the director and one, many of them kind of owned up to this um, after the fact, saying that you know, they depicted a couple of characters, I think one played by B.D. Wong, the actor B.D. Wong, and one played by Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton's character was actually a Asian male character in the original in the movie, they casted Tilda Swinton with a shaved head and kind of androgynous appearance. And it was problematic for a number of reasons and cast kind of like, I think exactly like you were saying before, this kind of general kind of Eastern religion with dash of Buddhism, a dash of Taoism, a dash of Confucians, and that kind of turned out to be really none of them in the end. The way that you know, it's seen as a source of power for the hero of the story, for Doctor Strange, that he kind of gets his power from these sources uh, that are mysterious, somewhat exoticized, and then you know, he goes off and saves the world with that, and kind of leaves behind the sources in some way, shape, or form. And so as a counterpoint to that, I also want to bring up everything everywhere all at once. I went to see the movie and I was really moved by it, um, not, not just because of the performances, but because of the really thoughtful way that included a lot of Buddhist and Taoist philosophy. It was really the first time that I saw Buddhist Taoist philosophy kind of justice being done to them in a kind of European or uh, North American movie. It was in the screenplay, in the kinds of uh, terms that they chose, in the dialogue among the characters, how you know, there was this n sense of you know, they're, they're not being a constant, and they're not being a constant so that there was potential in all sorts of ways, shape, and forms, and how uh, different choices have consequences, uh, and the kind of, you want to say, cause and effect, or you no. Know, karma, karmic kind of way. Uh, and I thought that Everything Everywhere All at Once did a, like I say, a more thoughtful and reflective treatment of many, many key ideas in Buddhist philosophy as it is practiced in Chinese-speaking circles. I am so taken by these two examples that you've given. It's so stark to me and obvious what a degree of thoughtfulness can do for somebody's art, because these are two pieces of art that people ostensibly cared very much about. And of course, Dr. Strange had plenty of baggage <laughs> um, otherwise that it was working under. And I'm thinking about this, this idea of how this sort of homogenization and mixing together of all of these different ideas and then picking and choosing the ones that are, are useful in the context of the movie, such as was done with Dr. Strange, can have this very dehumanizing effect. You mentioned this like mysticism and mystique, this unknown East um, that almost becomes like an unknowable East. 
an idea of this type of person or a thought or philosophy so different as to be insurmountably different. And one might say, oh, well, but it's done, you know, with this intention of making um, them look cool <laughs> or powerful. Uh, but I think that dehumanization, whether it's done to elevate or to deride, is equally harmful, or at least probably doesn't feel very humanizing <laughs> if it's dehumanizing. Yeah, I think that that's a big part of the harm is that not only can it be dehumanizing, it kind of robs the depiction of religion of any kind of meaningful dimension. That, uh, in other words, this is if uh, if it's kind of being treated as in a kind of you know, mysterious, mystique-filled way, it kind of essentially denies space for those you know, religious practices or faiths to be substantiated, to be kind of given their due dignity, you know, how they view the world, what they value about the human condition, what they pay attention to about you know, human existence. So there's, a, I think, a rich set of questions that regardless of what your faith or creed is, that you can ask about religion and spirituality. And more often than not, I think with Buddhism, it's not given that space. What That space is withdrawn in favor of entertainment value, in favor of uh, in a kind of gimmicky way that no, this is done as a plot device rather than as mm-hmm. a meaningful artistic component with, no, with contributions that it can make to how we think and view art. Which is quite sad because uh, we think about everything everywhere all at once, which is probably... I mean, if you want to talk about entertainment aspect alone, (laughs) one of the most, I mean, it's an action comedy. It's not like an art house film or anything. It's an action comedy the same way Doctor Strange was. But it's, I think, personally, infinitely more entertaining if and I feel like that's the lowest bar (laughs) Uh, but it is due to that thoughtfulness and that ability to that very humanizing factor where we still get to see really fun you know punches and kicks and explosions and special effects and all that fun stuff that we love while also having at the heart of a very human story that did the work the effort to understand the material that it was working with yeah, I think I think that's a really good point, and I'm by no means am I saying that though know, everything everywhere all at once is kind of the the perfect movie. Uh, you know, it has it's not it's not perfect, uh, and it definitely leans towards entertainment in many respects, and uh, in the way that you know, sequences are depicted in that kind of action comedy genre, as you as you mentioned. Uh, but yeah, I think that that thoughtfulness can make such a huge difference in terms of uh, really giving due you know, dignity to a religion, to a spiritual practice, and letting it come to life, and letting it live in ways that you know, may you know, surprise us, or that may open new inroads for us, or that may you know, let us think about existence. Uh, I know this deep existential question all of a sudden, but let us think about the human condition of existence. And that's such a big part of what a religion does, is help us make sense of the human condition, what we go through while living, however difficult, however joyful, however grief-filled that may be. Um, you know, it's a way of making sense of that, that richness of lived experience, of existence. And I think that thoughtfulness towards a religion like Buddhism can go a long way in showing how Buddhism lets us you know, understand uh, you know, the, human, the human condition. I wanted to touch back on the question once more. So we've talked about this sort of like Western culture's understanding, and we've talked eloquently just now about how art and religion and, and all of these things can intertwine and, and help us understand that human condition. I wanted to, to ask, you've mentioned that you, uh, you were born in London, you were raised in Taiwan, but you've spent much of your education 
either in London or here in the United States. And in doing so, you've consumed reasonably, I assume, <laughs> a lot of media produced by the West. And I was wondering if these sort of let's charitably say problematic media portrayals of Buddhism have affected your own uh, relationship to Buddhism or your own understanding of it? Yeah, um, that's a again, really interesting question. I, I, um, I really appreciate how thoughtful these questions are about you know, thinking about the role of my kind of personal you know, religious practices and how it relates to the wider world. And I myself am guilty of some of the kind of the Know, totalizing tendencies that we talked about, even by using a term like West or Western. And it can't be helped in some ways because those are our shorthands. But just off the bat, I think it's important to be aware of the kinds of shorthands that we do use and their potential to generalize, to be reductive even. And in terms of you know, the kind of depictions of Buddhism, there are a couple of things that, that come to mind. And I think some of this has to do with your last question about kind of the depiction of Buddhism in popular media um, in European and North American countries in general. I think I've, and this is more my personal experience, I would say, in conversations with people who are not Buddhist, uh, I think there's also almost kind of an interest in Buddhism as a something that is different, or if I can say kind of kind of almost untainted by religious trauma or by difficulties, uh, hang-ups, challenges of faith, and that tendency to kind of simplify Buddhism as like kind of just meditation or something, some other kind of you know, single practice. And I think Buddhism does have dimensions of trauma. That's something that I think that I've kind of just because of the way that Buddhism is depicted and often flattened uh, in what I've seen growing up and being educated in the U.S. and living in the U.K., some people forget that there is, you know, as with many other religions, there, is, there are elements of religious trauma that are possible in Buddhism. And I'm speaking in particular of this sense of your life is you know, a cycles of life and death that there are these cycles when, when someone dies, you know, they come back in the next life, you know, that kind of concept. And the idea that you know, the deeds that you do in one life affect your fate, your, you know, your, uh, your experience in the next life. Uh, you know, some people might call this karma, um, but karma is a bit more complicated than that. But that's kind of a shorthand, at least, for saying that. You know, I have friends and family friends who, you know, when they encounter inevitable kind of difficulties in life, they think that it's something that they've done in a previous life that has caused them mm. difficulties in this life. And it's mm. very hard to kind of just get out of that vicious cycle. It, it is indeed a vicious cycle. And I think for me, my take on this is that, you no, know, you, you never quite know. You know, if we do believe in these cycles of life and death, we never quite know what went well and what went poorly in a previous life. You know, that something that we perceive as a good in this life might not really be a blessing or might be, say, an, an indulgence rather than a blessing. So that's just to say, you know, generally, there, it's so hard to tell. And that one-to-one you know, -one relationship between past life and present life it's, it's very hard to resist joining the dots and drawing that connection. Uh, so Buddhism is by no means without its own set of kind of baggage and, and you know, trauma or difficulties or otherwise. And I think that's something that, that has stood out to me over time. Uh, that's, it's, a, it's a dimension of Buddhism that I, I've seen growing up uh, through my kind of experience, but that doesn't get... Uh, doesn't get talked about much in popular culture um, and the way that popular culture influences perceptions of Buddhism. 
I think I'm seeing a through line here for what we're talking about now and this media portrayal as, of Buddhism as this sort of like more flat one. I think what's coming to mind is I've spoken with a lot of Buddhists here in Utah Valley, and quite a few of them, they, they mentioned that the reason they started going to these Buddhist meetups, a lot of them cite religious trauma from previous churches that they had been a part of. And I think that um, remembering that Buddhism isn't some sort of specially pure philosophy untainted by, you know, human foibles. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that it's, a, a, it's that same kind of dehumanizing that we were talking about that happens when media portrays Buddhism as like a superpower in and of itself in this like, mm-hmm. you know, disconnected from its material history. It's the same sort of putting on a pedestal of something which which divorces it from the reality and in doing so from its actual merit as a as a school of thought. Yeah, and I, I think that's really well put. Um, and I, in retrospect, untainted might be too strong of a word. Um, I'm thinking like unburdened, perhaps, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. by this kind of sense of trauma that others have faith in their previous you know, spiritual religious practices. And I think when you say dehumanization, it really kind of it's a selective slice of Buddhism, in other words, uh, that it kind of dwells on the good. And um, I don't want to sound cynical, but dwells on what is maybe advantageous or even profitable, but almost taking it out of context, overlooking that there is a, I think with any kind of system of beliefs, we have to embrace it in in level-headed, honest terms. And overlooking how Buddhism can be challenging uh, is in some ways, I think, um, again, like subscribing to a very selective slice of the religion and overlooking the kind of inevitable challenges that come with the belief. I think that this leads in, thank you, by the way. Uh, and I think that what you've just said leads in very well into this next question that I have. Well, this next question might be a bit sensitive. Um, this episode of Critical Mass was first conceptualized, I think I mentioned earlier, but it's because I've been speaking with a local community of Buddhists here in Utah Valley. They're known as the Awakening Valley Sangha, uh, which is in the tradition of Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh. And this tradition is known as the Plum Village tradition, which is in the lineage of Vietnamese Mahayana Buddhism, which came to Vietnam through Chinese and Indian Buddhist monks, and I guess missionaries might be a word for it. But this specific Zangha is largely attended by and run by white Utahns of Christian or formerly Christian faith, and positions itself primarily as a mindfulness community. I would like to talk briefly about the popularity of mindfulness Mm -hmm. (laughs) and everything from corporate workplaces to sanghas like the Awakening Valley, along with the overrepresentation in such organizations of white practitioners and leaders. Are you familiar with the popularity of, like, quote, mindfulness, often kind of vaguely based off of Buddhist teachings, especially in, like, corporate work settings? I'm aware of the term, and I've read up on the term to some extent about how, you know, how it's kind of become popular, especially in corporate culture, and especially the last few years, given that everyone just lived through a major global pandemic and the stresses that that brought on a personal, professional, and health level. So I'm familiar with the term and the way that certain Buddhist practices color that term, or you know, in fact, the way that term is is used um, in you know, broader popular culture. And I think um, to I think to your question, it's the this is some of what we spoke about earlier that we should try and see beliefs in their proper context and as a more comprehensive whole rather than you know, selective slices here and there that are you know that are 
know, say, taken advantage of or chosen because of a specific kind of benefit or profit. I think mindfulness is definitely a big part of Buddhist tradition, as many people know it.、Um, I know, you know, kind of meditation is a major component of. Uh, many strands of Buddhism, whether it, whether practiced at home in you know, religious institutions、um, or a variety of contexts, but I think to、uh, again to define to kind of use mindfulness as a as the sole representative of Buddhism is inaccurate, and I say that because、uh, it's something that perhaps is most accessible and. Lends itself more to commercialization than other aspects. So it's no, you know,、um, no. There are other elements of Buddhist practice, like say reciting sutras or going on retreats, that are harder to do.、Uh, and especially since many of the sutras are have been translated, say, into English, but have such force and impact in the way that they're recited in, say, Chinese or Vietnamese or, you、uh, know, back in the original Sanskrit,、uh, that it's very hard in English to replicate that. Sense of you know, form of you know, repeating certain parts of the sutra、um, that create meditative space that allow the kind of the person reciting the sutra to empty their minds and let themselves be heard in a way.、Uh, so I don't know if I'm doing full justice to,、um, and I don't think I'm doing full justice because there are a number of different traditions revolving the reciting of sutras. But just kind of thinking about mindfulness as meditation as a kind of emptying.、Um, Makes me feel uneasy because mindfulness, and I think many many practitioners will say this as well. Mindfulness tends to be treated as a kind of emptying of the mind, as an absence. But from what I understand and what I grew up with, at least there is that kind of emptying、uh, of kind of clearing the mind. But there's also that inviting in of a presence,、uh, specifically of the presence of your own spirit, of your own mind that's been kind of overshadowed or crowded out by. Kind of worldly dealings,、um, or kind of the mundane world, generally speaking, you know, work, you know, stresses, so on and so forth. It's a way of inviting that presence in、uh, through the, the space that meditation affords. And more often than not, I I think I would like people to see that complete picture.、Uh, it's not just about an absence. It's not just about letting go, but it's about what you invite in as a presence as well. Thank you.、Um, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you you mentioned, and it, and it, it you mentioned at the time it sounded maybe too cynical, but this sort of partitioning or slicing off parts of Buddhism that are most profitable、um, in a corporate work setting, the encouragement of employees to empty their minds could be argued to have maybe if not nefarious, then at least、uh, not the most compassionate. Of of motivations behind it, and <laughs> if that's not too too cynical of me to say, <laughs> but at least in my experience, my one experience with mindfulness in a corporate work setting felt、uh, somewhat manipulative. Though I was being told to not experience the stress and the fear that kind of went along with that work setting. Whereas everything that I've looked into for、um, a more holistic approach to a, a Buddhist. Practice has to do. You mentioned this inviting in and this noticing, and you know, letting things be as they are rather than trying to control them.
Yeah, and, and I think it's it's that kind of, you know, in a corporate context, I think it can easily slide into, you know, where you do this kind of clearing of the mind, emptying, so that you can invite more work in, <laughs> so that you have the capacity <laughs> to do to do more work. And I, I don't think that's the point of meditation. Far from that. I think the point of meditation is to, at least as far as I understand it, and as I think many Buddhist practitioners that I know of understand it, is to invite yourself in and to be able to sit with yourself rather than kind of get to know yourself through, or you know, encounter yourself through, you know, through work or through anxieties, through stress, through difficult personal relations. You invite yourself to be an encounter with yourself as it is, you know, without any kind of big filters uh, getting in the way or kind of distorting uh, your sense of self. So, yeah, it, it's, it's tricky because you know, it depends on the, what you oriented for. And in a corporate setting, um, I'd be a little bit, I'd have reservations, let's just say. <laughs> As previously mentioned, both the secular corporate mindfulness settings and mindfulness organizations such as Awakening Valley Sangha are overwhelmingly, not entirely, but mostly, run and attended by white people. While belief and practice in Buddhism is not inherently linked to any racial category, white America has a long history of systemically anti-Asian policy and action, sometimes by targeting specifically uh, non-Christian belief systems such as Buddhism in order to attack the person who is practicing it. Given this history, what are your thoughts and feelings with the new popularity of Buddhism in predominantly white circles? That's a complicated question. Uh, I think I'll start by saying that Buddhism does not have as many political intersections as some other religions. In many ways, I think Buddhism tries to transcend that transcend the sense of, you know, what can we do together in order to to see through difficulties and problems and to, you know, so to speak, rise above that. And you know, Buddhism is not always known for kind of uh, being involved in social activism or political activism, although there are some notable exceptions. Um, and, uh, for example, most recently in um, in Burma, its treatment of Muslim Rohingya refugees was kind of colored in a large part by a you know by a Buddhist government and was kind of driven by kind of Buddhist discrimination or dislike towards a Muslim minority. Uh, so there are kind of like say notable exceptions of intersections of Buddhism and politics. But I think more to what you asked about the kind of popularity of Buddhism predominantly white circles. I, I would like to see more a kind of more thoughtful approach, that this isn't just a kind of fancy way of dressing up your mindfulness. You can be mindful and meditate without Buddhism. No, there are many ways, there are many multiple traditions uh, and multiple ways of practices of meditation and reflection, secular as well as religious. So why Buddhism in particular? Uh, and I think that question asks people to again to see mindfulness specifically in the context of Buddhism, and the ways that it invites presence, uh, the way that it's not just about kind of, you know, staring into the void or kind of uh, saying um. No, these are kind of I just kind of meant brought up this frequent kind of stereotyping of you know, of Buddhist practices. No, it's not just about that. It's a it's a whole school of thought. It's a whole philosophy. It's a whole set of religious practices that you observe, whether you're devout or you no know, less than devout, like I grew, grew up within the culture. Like I was saying earlier, how I grew up within the culture uh, that subscribed to those beliefs and practices. You know, I would invite people who are drawn to Buddhism to uh, see it not only in kind of popular context, but for them to kind of 
read up on, to be curious about a holistic set of practices,、um, because there are connections between you know, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's you know, meditation, whether it's you know, chanting, reciting sutras. There, all of these are interconnected, and whenever we focus on one. As you were describing before about what happens with Buddhism in predominantly white circles,、uh, if you just focus on one, it's going to be inherently misrepresentative and reductive, and we don't see the interconnection that comes with a set of practices, and that we see, say, for example, in Christian beliefs about, say. Rituals of mass,、uh, rituals. Whether it's you no, know, I'm thinking of Catholic traditional you know, confirmation and、uh, you no, know, wh- whether it's you no know, confirmation, confession, so on and so forth. All of those are interconnected, and you can say the same about. I keep going referring to Catholicism because I re- I teach medieval literature, and that's kind of the <laughs> default background. But okay,、uh, yeah,、uh, but it's not to kind of focus on on them in particular. But I think you no, know, thinking about say you no know, the predominant faith in where we live in Utah, you no know, the LDS faith, you no know, there are a set of interconnected practices, and for Protestant denominations as well, there's always going to be a set of interconnected practices that are ritual, that are artistic, that are spatial in terms of the architecture, in terms of you know the Physical spaces where worship takes place that are community-driven in terms of the relationship that you have with your fellow worshipers, your fellow churchgoers, members of your congregation, fellow sangha attendees.、Uh, that I think I I would like there to be more of a、uh, motivation and an invitation to see a religion in its more like Buddhism in its more holistic context. And I think p- part of that has to do with my upbringing as well, because I encounter many of these religions really up close at a young age, because I saw them not just through, you know, popular media depictions, but through their houses of worship, and through discussing scripture. You no, know, how they how scripture fits into their whatever faith they're in, you know, what their scripture means to them. So I should say, you no, know, I I grew up. It's a bit unusual. I grew up in a neighborhood in Taipei, where where I lived was within ten minutes walking distance of the LDS temple, the Vatican embassy. Those were across the street from each other. I walked by those、oh, two、wow. every day on my way to school. And then also the seat of the main Catholic cathedral in Taipei was also within walking distance, and the cathedral was a, a mere hundred feet away from the Grand Mosque of Taipei. And nearby were a number of different Protestant denominations,、uh, Methodists in particular.、Uh, some were kind of more charismatic, evangelical、uh, denominations, and all of that in addition to, say, you know, the local Buddhist temple and or, or the local kind of、uh, Buddhist fellowship. So I kind of grew up seeing these religions up close. I remember visiting the mosque、uh, for a report in middle school and <laughs> and having the、uh, the imam at the time tell me about you know the How they pray five times a day. How their rituals for entering the mosque, cleansing themselves, and so there was this kind of I think it was a really a uniquely privileged position in that there were so many of these faiths so close together. Some of my friends, you know, attended like the after-school program run by the LDS、uh, temple.、Uh, no, it was about teaching English and also teaching them about their faith as well.、Uh, so I grew up in this kind of maybe not quite a melting pot because there were you know, distinct faiths,、um, but certainly seeing these faiths as counterpoints and contrasts to each other, and that's why I kind of circle back to what we were talking about earlier. That's why I kind of want to see this, you know, appreciation and honoring. Regardless of what faith, this is kind of appreciation and honoring of religious practice in its proper, rich, 
full uh, context um, and not just what you know what what suits you or what what makes you feel happy um, no it's about you no know, how you how you live within religion and with the religion, how the religion may live in you. Well, thank you. I, I think that you have actually answered everything that I that I had to had, wanted to ask. Uh, that was absolutely beautiful. And by, by which I mean, and I, I don't want to get more specific than that, than just uh, you know throwing that out there. What I mean is this uh, very thoughtful and compassionate perspective that you're providing is really shining through here. I think it, it can be easy to ju- just as um, there's a reduction. That happens in media in non-thoughtful representations of Buddhism. I think it's easy to reduce people or movements or, or intentions, and I think I, I'm, ver- I'm really appreciating this invitation to do more rather than a demand for less. Not that there's anything wrong with people saying, "Hey, like, stop! <laughs> you know, you're doing this thing wrong. You're doing harm. Stop doing harm." But the emphasis on the invitation to do more, to learn more, I think that's that's central to the purpose of this podcast. So thank you for articulating that in this context. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. I know my answer was really long-winded, <laughs> but I'm really glad to hear that you um, appreciate it. And I think that's again, it's part of how I, I think really, it's really a part of how Buddhism has informed my worldview that I tend to, you know, tend to strive to be be compassionate and be generous whenever I can and you know, offer and afford space. And I think you know, Buddhism is, isn't always kind of, you know, insistent on orthodoxy. Um, and, and that's kind of my, at least that's my personal feeling uh, and experience with it. And I think, you know, there, uh, there's some that uh, some practitioners may, may, you know, defer in that opinion. But uh, I think it, no, I think this is from my grandmother. You know, she was as long as you're taking care of your spirit, looking after yourself, looking after your spirit, that's what she wants to see. That's what's good. That's, you know, in some ways, you know, an example of building good karma for yourself. I like that, taking care of your spirit. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I do have a final question. I ask this to all the interviewees. In your opinion, what is art? Or put another way, what is the purpose of art? Oh, I'm loving all these, you know, broad and beautiful and broad and also inviting questions. I don't quite know where to start. I think art is fundamentally something that makes us look within ourselves and reflect on our relationship to the wider world. I think uh, I think that captures, you know, art's capacity for us to to instigate thought, to make us ponder uh, big questions and to make us think about you know, how do we approach, how do we represent, how do we express complicated, complex, challenging ideas, uh, and also you know, invites us to because art is almost always on display. There's no art in a vacuum or no art in darkness, uh, really. So it's almost always kind of on display, communicated with or to an audience. Uh, so it's kind of participatory in that effect. That's why I say it's you know, something that makes us look inside ourselves uh, as well as think about our relation to the wider world. It's, this, it's, it's something to be appreciated, but it's also, I think, a catalyst for, uh, for thinking, for reflection, for you know, relating to each other, understanding those relationships. Thank you. I think I want to add my own thought that you sparked here. Ever since the study abroad in London, I've been thinking about the power of a frame. You mentioned how art is on display. And I think uh, the frame that an art is in, whether it's a literal physical frame or the setting that it's put in or the glass box it's under or the street corner that it's on, are just as much a part of the art as the art object itself. 
Thank you for reminding me of that. That's mm-hmm. That's been on my mind about art. So thank you so much for joining me. And I think that's all I've got for you. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for your questions. Uh, I uh, appreciate the chance to kind of speak and reflect about this issue. And again, really love your sentiment at the end about you know, the context. I think that speaks to a lot of the a lot of the ex- exchanges that we have throughout our questions and answers. Again, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you to today's interviewee for sharing their stories. Check the show notes for a link to the full episode this interview is part of. The Center for Social Impact is located in the Student Wellness Building in SC105 across from the ballroom. We have events every Thursday, including Movie Night, the Impact Speaker Series, Impact 101, giveaways, and more. Critical Mass Podcast is produced by the Center for Social Impact of Utah Valley University, but was researched, scripted, recorded, and edited by students. Any and all opinions expressed by me or interviewees belong to us alone, and don't necessarily reflect the opinions or values of the Center for Social Impact or of Utah Valley University.